0: And hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live on our first Tuesday of 2022. I had to think about that for a second. Nice to be with you tonight. We have a great show coming up with all the news that you've been talking about and hearing about everywhere else. But I wanted to say hello to David Pepper, the author of our book that we're discussing tonight, Laboratories of Autocracy. Why did you call it that?
1: Well, you know, for years, people sort of said, hopefully, that states would be laboratories of democracy. And sadly, in parts of our history, they haven't been, and they're certainly not being right now many of them are attacking democracy every single day as we talked about you know last couple days When Orban does, we figure it out. But when it's in our own states, we often don't see it. So I tried to go with a title that would wake people up to that reality.
0: It is true that we can sort of see everyone else's faults, but we have a very hard time seeing it ourselves. And that's because there is some strategy behind all of this. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today is the mechanisms the Republican party and all the other power brokers that make all this change really obscure a lot of the things that are going on in the country, mostly on a state level, as you point out in your book. Why is the state level so important?
1: Well, one, you know, go to the Constitution. States have a lot of power over our democracy, you know, whether it's the electoral college or, or drawing the districts for Congress or themselves or setting the rules of elections. It's an enormous amount of power. A lot of other countries don't operate that way, but here in America, that's the case. But the second part, as you hinted at, no one knows it. No one knows who their state reps are. They don't know what the people in that capital city do. So to put a spin on that old Spider Man quote, With great power comes great anonymity. And that's a dangerous combination. Like they can do all these bad things. No one knows about it. No one knows who they are. Their elections are rigged. So they always get reelected, which if you are the Koch brothers or Alec or anybody who wants to do anti-democratic things, that's where you go, that's where it gets done. And the people who do it for you will get reelected. If they were a mayor or something, they probably would lose because a lot of the things they're doing are deeply unpopular.
0: And as we'll show in just a few minutes, you know, there's a mechanism as well to make us so distracted whether it's um, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Madison right. Cawthorn or even Sean Hannity. We get so distracted that we can't see a lot of the time that so much of the stuff is going on because there's so much distraction. But let's focus on that in just a minute. I do want to spend a minute here because it just dropped a short while ago looking at the Sean Hannity letter. It's a letter sent from the January 6th committee to Sean Hannity. It's not a subpoena. It's a voluntary cooperation letter, which is interesting. In it, there's a lot of detail about how Hannity spoke to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff of the White House, of course, of the then White House and to Donald Trump, but also saying things like, for example, on December 31st, 2020, you texted Mr. Meadows the following, we can't lose the entire White House counsel's office. I do not see January the 6th happening the way he is being told. After the 6th, you should announce you will lead the nationwide effort to reform voting strategy. So that's incredible detail and very personal detail that is being released by the committee. And it's very rare, I would say, for an anchor of an, any news organization, whether you like them or not, it's still a news organization. It's very unusual for them to be delving into this territory because it is really the first state, the fourth state, but the First Amendment. So what yeah. do you make of that? You know, how concerning is that they're treading into these waters?
1: Well, one, it, it truly is bizarre. I've been in a number of offices. I know the media well. I've never seen anything like this. Like no one, no media respected journalist would ever send you a letter about the strategy on communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one is he knows it's a lie. And I think, you know, so do a lot of other people. I give him a little credit here. Most of them were afraid to tell Trump at the moment that it was a lie. He's clearly hinting at it. But even then, if you go to that last sentence of that page, he was still willing to push the big lie by saying we need to reform voting integrity. So even though he knows it's a lie, he knows the election was what it was. And this is what a lot of senators and elected officials are doing. Even if they don't say, you know, Trump lost, and more and more of them are are actually saying Trump won, even the ones that haven't ever said Trump won, they're going with this last line, which casts doubt on the election and they do it knowing full well it's a lie. And you wonder why 70% or so of Republicans think it. It's because even the people you know, who know it's a lie, they won't say it. And they'll actually use Weezer words like this that basically is going to keep all the big lie believers happy.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that the big lie and also the coronavirus vaccine controversy, all these gaslighting scandals that have happened have been, uh, you know, core to what Fox News has been doing and what OAN has been doing and Newsmax as well. So it's really interesting to see that the committee is actually taking a look at that. And I think it's going to be a big part of their findings is how yeah. how much of a gaslighting effort this was. Right. Um, and I,
1: I'll just one other yeah, point. Sure. I was doing a little research today, given the Orban endorsement and the parallels to Hungary. Should scare all of us. Mm. Orgon controls the private media to a huge degree as well. This is exactly what he does. He's crushing the independent media and he has sort of meetings and discussions like this to get his propaganda out. So even this bizarre and frankly disturbing relationship with Fox News comes right out of the playbook of autocrats like Orban.
0: Absolutely. This is exactly the territory we're going to be covering for the rest of this hour. I'm going to spend a few minutes just talking a little bit about Marjorie Taylor Greene and her being taken off Twitter, but also about Madison Cawthorn and the news we heard last week about him having that weird trip to St. Petersburg. It's a lot more yeah. of the same, but it also requires a little bit of investigation. So we're going to do that. We'll talk more about Hannity and we'll talk about your book and how people can actually use the book to help save democracy. On state level. We'll talk about all about that as we continue narrative tonight. This is the week that brought us the suspension of Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter account. Isn't that nice? A Twitter spokesperson said the company permanently suspended the account for repeated violations of our COVID-19 misinformation policy, which means she was lying about COVID. Green still has access to her official congressional account at Rep MTG, which means she's not totally off Twitter. She's sort of half of Twitter because that's a personal account that they canceled. But her official account at Rep MTG is still there and is followed by 386,000 followers. So it doesn't mean we're going to be hearing the end of MTG, nor does it mean that Twitter is really to be taken seriously for its action here. But in all the fairness, Marjorie Taylor Greene probably welcomes all of this. You see, for her, any attention is her doing her job. She doesn't really have much of a job. She doesn't sit on committees. She doesn't do anything else. Her only job is to grab attention. And really, she's nothing more than a carnival barker for the gaslighting brigade. And for that, I did this really great little comparison between carnival barker on the left, Marjorie Taylor Greene on the right, and you can see they are even wearing the same wardrobe. She's carrying a stop the steal face mask, as one does when one's gaslighting a nation. But the net effect of MTG and the so-called Freedom Caucus is the debasement of our politics. And they're doing that in order to hide what's really going on. While they mostly play for the headlines of the gaslighting variety, there is a lot going on below deck at the HMS Geo. And today we're going to show you exactly what with our guest, David Pepper, who has a terrific book out, which will explain to you exactly what's happening in the heartland of America that is a real threat to democracy and is the real introduction of autocracy in the United States. And will tell you exactly what you can do to stop it. So you have to listen or watch the entire show. Now, one year ago this week, on January the 6th, the Freedom Caucus gaslighting became very real and also had very deadly consequences, as is now very well known. Congressional investigators tell Rolling Stone magazine that they are, in fact, investigating members of the Freedom Caucus. They didn't only pour fuel on the proverbial flames of the January 6th insurrectionists, they actually helped plan the event, including taking part in several meetings. They participated in these conversations or had top staffers join in, including Rep. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn, Paul Gosar. Lauren Boebert, Mo Brooks, Andy Biggs, and Louie Gohmert of Texas. Now this quote that's in Rolling Stone, I think comes from Ali Alexander, who might be the source for the Rolling Stone magazine because he is cooperating with the investigators and he might have received immunity in exchange for being so honest and open about what happened. So here's the quote. We would talk to Boebert's team, Cawthorn's team, Ghostar's team, like back to back to back, the organizer told Rolling Stone magazine. Madison Cawthorne, of course, it tells a lot of tall tales. Take, for example, his insistence that he trained for the Paralympics. that was a complete exaggeration or that he would be attending the US Naval Academy. He, in fact, was rejected by the US Naval Academy. He regularly tells supporters on that Joe Biden is not a legitimate president, even though he acknowledged that Biden did in fact win the presidency when he did an interview on this in January 23rd last year. So Cawthorn knows how to spin a tale or two and he knows how to get into a lot of trouble as well. Cawthorn spent one semester at Patrick Henry College when multiple people have accused him of sexual harassment. So when Cawthorn announced that he and his wife of eight months, Christina Bayardell were getting divorced, it raised some red flags for me as it did for many of you. And then came this clip from an interview with from The Daily Caller in which he describes how they met. The first line is a killer.
2: It all starts in a Russian casino. And so I had a very large back surgery that was coming up. It was reconstructed back surgery. It was a very dangerous procedure. Um, and so because of that, we knew that I may uh, be very limited in my life or I'd be very uh, free from a lot of the pain I was dealing with. And so we took the risk d- to do that surgery. And so when I decided to do that, I said, well, doctor, let me go on one last trip just in case I'm not going to be able to ever get on an airplane again. And then uh, so he said okay we'll do well you'll be in a lot of pain I said that's it's, it's worth it so me and a bunch of my friends we went to uh we, we got to go over to um, the, the over to very close to Russia we got went to Sweden and Norway and we had just an incredible vacation it was great I was in a lot of pain the whole time but it was wonderful uh, but then we got on a boat and went into uh, st. Petersburg in Russia and you know we just decided to take $100 each and go into a casino and see how it went and you know i ended up meeting uh, an american there who was a captain in the army and who was originally from miami and so we hit it off created a really great relationship and stayed in contact for about a year and a half
0: it's let me pull up the transcript quickly there and just walk you through some of the first sentences here as he says so me and a bunch of my friends we went to uh uh we got uh uh to go over to the uh over uh uh well we were close to russia It reveals that, you know, he goes off to St. Petersburg and he's very tricky over there trying to reveal where, in fact, he's going. I thought that, that clip where he's stammering for like 30 seconds about, you know, was it Sweden? Was it Norway? Was it Russia? And finally, he does reveal that it is Russia. I thought that was very interesting. He goes on, of course, to mention that he met this guy named Todd at this Russian casino. It seems to me pretty suspicious that he's just wandering into a Russian casino by accident. It seems like that would have been something he'd planned. It doesn't seem to me like something you'd accidentally do, does it to you?
1: No, it's, I mean, a very strange uh, small world. I actually spent time in St. Petersburg in the 90s, it, back when we were kind of getting along Clinton-Yeltsin. The idea that you just hop on a boat and go from Sweden and Finland and end up in St. Petersburg also sounds bizarre.
0: Well, you can uh, do it. I looked it up, by the way. It takes about 13 hours or 20 hours, yeah. depending on whether you take a train or a car. But it's a long trip. It's not one of these. Yeah, I don't you know, know the it's not day trip.
1: now either. But like, yeah. you know, back then it would have been a bureaucracy to do that if yeah. you hadn't already planned it ahead. Again, I don't know the current rules. We're getting along with Russia worse now than we were when I was there. And you couldn't just get on a boat and show up. So, it, yeah, it's really bizarre. The other, and, the other uh, thing about it is the, the timing. Yeah, we'll learn more every yeah. time he does an interview about this.
0: The timing is really interesting because this happened after his accident, which is 2014. But before he became the congressman for North Carolina so that's interesting because it must have been around 2017 that he went on his trip to Russia, which is when, after we all knew that Russia had already meddled in the elections in 2016, True. which is a really strange time for someone to go who's an aspiring congressman to then go right. to Russia. I mean, it looks suspicious to me. I
1: mean, he must have seen that Flynn and others were all there. So <laughs> so it made sense. But yeah, no, it's a terribly strange episode. And then he meets this
0: captain and then comes back. And this captain, a few months later, decides to introduce him to this wife at a fake CrossFit event. Just bizarre. Why do Need a fake CrossFit event? What just happened to a blind date of a dinner or something like that? So here's here he is picking up the rest of the story, and then we'll hear from you a little bit more about your thoughts on that.
2: And so we hit it off, created a really great relationship, and stayed in contact for about a year and a half. Until later, I was down in Miami for work, and uh, he he texted me and said, "Hey, would you like to come compete in a CrossFit competition?" And so I, said, I was I, I laughed and said, "Well, well, Todd, I'm in a wheelchair. I obviously can't do CrossFit." And he said, "Well, just do the pull-up section." I was like, "Okay, sounds good." And so I show up, but anyways, it all was a sham. It was a fake CrossFit competition. He just wanted me to put me in the same room with the, uh, the girl who was eventually gonna become my fiance. And so we did, and her and I hit it off, and it was, uh, it was really, it's been a magical relationship ever since. Doesn't sound very real to me. All of it sounds ridiculously suspicious. In fact, it wasn't
0: just even married to her for eight months as he has been reported. He was actually married to her for a year. Uh, They had a secret wedding ceremony, not so secret because it was ultimately revealed by the press, but in December of 2020 and then a more public one in April, which is why we think it was only a nine month wedding or marriage, but it was actually a year long marriage. Lots of questions around Madison Cawthorn. And the thing which strikes me as being really weird about it is how close he is to Mark Meadows. And Mark Meadows keeps coming up time and time again in this January the 6th investigation. And I had no idea that even as early as 2014, and you know, Cawthorn used to work for Meadows at his local office in North Carolina. He was a special assistant there. So there's a lot to be learned, I think, still on what Madison Cawthorn was doing, both in Russia and on January the 6th, as they continue to investigate this.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's quite a tale. I mean, if all that's part of a lie and it's so convoluted, it scares me what the real story might be.
0: (laughs) Right. I thought they were actually being quite smart by sort of getting in front of it by admitting the fact that it was a setup and it wasn't a real crossroad event because that's, you know, at least it's close to the truth. It might help them along there. But anyhow, my point behind running a little little clip about the Madison and MTG and all of this gaslighting is that this is really part of the strategy. It really is what they're doing, you know. The more you study them, the more we live through the Trump era, every day, whether he's in power or not in power, he is trying to own the headlines. And they mm-hmm. have a brigade of people in Congress Name the Freedom Caucus that are there to do just that. They really have no other job, they haven't passed any policies of note, anything like that. They're just there to make a noise and distract us from what the current administration, but also to distract us from what's going on in the middle of the country in the state houses, which brings us to your very excellent book. So tell us a little bit why, again, you sort of started on this, but tell us again exactly what might be happening in the state houses that we're not noticing as consumers of the news on a national level.
1: Sure. I mean, we know that people, some are very alarmed about the attacks on voting rights. And there's a whole community that's really pushing the Senate, Joe Biden to get that done. And a lot of them see the bigger picture. But overall, my worry is, we are literally sort of micro-targeting each of the offenses to democracy. You know, The attacks on protests, well, we're mad about that. The rigging of districts so you can never lose an election. In a lot of states, it's getting almost no coverage, but in Ohio and other states... The legislature is trying to change the rules of how judges are elected, and many states elect their judges, or the jurisdiction of those courts, so they don't actually have an independent check on things like election laws they pass. You know, trying to rewrite history to censor out the parts they don't like, attacking the way elections are run. It's all happening at one time, and as you said, that's part of the strategy. Throw everything at once in numerous states, not all that passes, but by the time you look up, a whole lot of it has. So this is bigger than a voting rights debate, although voting rights is maybe the core of it. This is about democracy itself. And it's about state houses. And, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, I, this sounds maybe um, patronizing to a lot of people working hard in these state houses, but they really are the Achilles heel of American governance. No one knows who they are. Right. They're more susceptible to corruption, as most studies find. A lot of them never face a reelection, partly because they've rigged these districts. The media is so, you know, hollowed out across the board, but where the price is really paid is coverage of state houses. And then nice. a whole lot of elections, you know, when you're watching election on an even numbered year, you're looking for the presidential result, the congressional result, governor, the, maybe the state house race gets a ticker at the bottom of the TV screen. Mm-hmm. But you never hear about that outcome if there even is a race. If you add it all up, this is where you can go better than anywhere else to really take a battle axe to democracy and as i said earlier they have the power i really appreciate your setup here madison Cawthorn and bobert and all them. as bad as they've been as dangerous as they were on january 6 they haven't passed a single law mm-hmm. they're in the minority That's- they're just talking some of them aren't even on committees Hill Mar- 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 green There are Mm -hmm. hundreds of people like them who had the same views, who are equally wacky, who are in the majority in state houses, passing law after law after law, backdooring the very things they'd want to do if they could. And we're all focused on the latest crazy thing that Marjorie Taylor Greene has tweeted, or apparently she's now in a fight with that Crenshaw, Mm -hmm. Gosar is off the wall. While we're doing that, again, hundreds like them are passing these laws, and maybe we hear about a few of them but we don't hear about most of them and the reason i call the book laboratories they're all happening at the same time in all these states these states are all learning from each other oh that passed in ohio let's do it here oh that dropbox ban made lines two hours longer let's do that here so not only are they ramming them through they are learning from each other both the successes and the failures so if some law got struck down well do it differently when you take it up in your state So they really are operating as laboratories. And that's one reason why, you know, you can't not fight for democracy, even in a very red state, because that very red state could create the template that other states that are more of a swing state, will then you, it's again, it's like soccer, my kids are seven years old, like you learn very quickly, if one side's always on offense, and the other side's always on defense, who wins? Well, they're on offense in 50 states. Every time they pass the law, every other state studies it. And if they can, they pass it. And it goes on and on and on and on all while we sit around and worry about Marjorie Taylor Greene's latest, you know, workout video or something.
0: Right. It is interesting as well. And you point this out in the book that, you know, the Democrats have been MIA in some of these red states for a long time. I mean, they're there in some sort of nominal fashion, but not really participating in the way the GOP is in these uh, state run houses.
1: Yeah. I mean, people are trying to catch up. You know, Eric Holder put together an effort with President Obama in 20, but the other side's got a decades long head start. They've been doing it for decades. It's not as if each state is doing this just on its own. They have national organizations where they train these people, they give them voter data, they give them model legislation. They sit in some fancy hotel room where they all want to visit. It's the mm-hmm. nicest place a lot of them will ever go. And then they send them back to the state house and they pass it. It's not even a local law. Right. It's designed by some think tank that says, well, this worked in Georgia, do it in Ohio. So they're doing that. While we're sort of slowly catching up, and again, we're decades behind and we have very little time left, but there's also some opportunity. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I try and point out in this book, and I use Ohio and a few other states as case studies, the mode of governing with these basically undemocratic state houses is leading to atrocious public outcomes. Schools Mm -hmm. are cratering because they're being defunded. Everything's basically take money from the public and put it in the hands of the private players who are making this thing all run. So take money from public schools, stick it in for-profit charter school scams that many times are delivering horrible education and sometimes are criminal. Mm. You know, give big subsidies to energy companies paid for by taxpayers. Don't do infrastructure so small towns decay down to nothing. The point is, if you want to win in these undemocratic states, there's a lot of material of really poor public outcomes. States like Ohio, we're proud of our state. Mm. It's unacceptable that our small towns are dying and we should run on that the reason you have a governor of Kansas who's a Democrat is because she ran on the fact that they had school four days a week. You know, Beto O'Rourke, he should run and he is. They couldn't keep the energy grid growing so people froze to death. It's all a consequence of an undemocratic system where the incentive is not to actually create good public outcomes, it's to keep the private players who want access to that grid or want school money in their pockets happy, which means that the public suffers. So it's bleak, we don't have a lot of time, But politically and institutionally, there's also ways out if people get organized quickly.
0: And, you know, to be clear, this is being organized on a national level. I mean, you were talking about, you know, the Council of National Policy or for National Policy, which Ann Nelson has been on the show talking about a lot here. You know, there's a plan that they're executing, and it's partly got to do with the fact that at the end of the day, do they get a chance to rewrite the Constitution if they have the majority of state houses?
1: Yeah. I mean, they can do that. Here's the thing, which is, and Jane Mayer and others pointed this out in her book, Dark Money, Mm. what the big players have figured out, and this is sort of bad news for the political people, the system they have created has certain incentives. Serve, private donors, public outcomes don't matter, be as extreme as possible, then you don't have a primary Mm -hmm. and undermine democracy so you never get challenged. And what we are found after 10 years, and it's been longer, but the last 10 years are really the most extreme it's been. The individual politicians actually don't even matter. They all behave the same way Mm -hmm. in response to the same incentives. So the Koch brothers and others, they don't care what happens to these people. If some guy gets busted for corruption, next up, someone else fills that seat and they start doing the same thing. Again, payday, landing, for-profit schools. You know, if some guy serves eight years and gets a job somewhere, it moves to Columbus, they don't care. The truth is, the individual politicians actually don't even matter. They're pawns, nice. and they all in the system. Then it's a Nationals, Alec, and others, and now more think tanks are getting involved, like Heritage. They create a system with certain incentives, and what they figured out is everyone behaves the same way in response to these incentives, right. and that's why it goes on and on and on. And one other point that people, I think, lose sight of, and I see it here in Ohio. That's one reason I wrote the book. I think people are continually shocked by what they see, mm-hmm. and part of my book's point. Is to say, no, never be shocked again. And one of the reasons why it's so much worse than people appreciate is we are now at the tail end of a generation of state house leaders, almost every one of them, who themselves have never been in a democracy. Mm-hmm. Their elections have been guaranteed from their first moment in politics. Maybe they won a primary, won seven or 8,000 votes, some got appointed. Never again have they had a challenge. So they're living large without ever having to answer to the voters, they know it and it makes them behave in a way that a lot are corrupt. Their public outcomes are terrible. They're more extreme. If there was ever a real democracy, they know they would lose. But a generation who themselves have never been in an election, they're scared to death of democracy. They love the power they get in the current system. And by the way, one other thing, everything they have done in a system that lacks democracy would actually be kryptonite in a system of democracy. So when they have a chance to rig elections or gerrymandering or suppress the vote, or attack courts that might stand up to them. They do all of it to keep themselves in power.
0: So what you're describing is that, in fact, parts of America are already autocratic and have been autocratic for a while, and that they are busy at trying to change the rest of us into being a lot more like them. And so we think about a yes, foreign and- threat, and we think about Russia, we think about Hungary, we we'll think about all these other countries, but it's here, right it next is. door in the red states. And it's questionable whether, you know, there's very much that can be done about it at this point. But let's say, there is, we'll go through that in a second. But the fact that we got here is kind of stunning that we are already in a partial autocratic st- system here.
1: And I don't want to speak to every country. In America, it's more dangerous that it's happening at the state level because those states have major power right. over the nation's democracy. So it may be in another country, if some you know, region had a bad government, it wouldn't matter. But here, they draw the districts so they can rig elections for the federal government and their own. They can set the rules and they can set the electors in the process. So, by the way, this is something that while we're all waking up to it, if you go back to the founders, They knew this was a risk. They literally, Mm, Madison wrote, we are giving huge power, which part of the bargain, we're giving huge power to these state houses over the federal system. And they were worried still about the monarchy reappearing and backdooring through states. So they said, if these states ever become undemocratic, it risks our entire country. They wrote that. And they literally wrote in the Constitution a clause capturing that concern. It's called the Guarantee Clause, where it says the United States shall guarantee a Republican form of government in every state. And by that they meant small d, democratic governance. To them, Republican form of government meant the people were sovereign. Oh, they were fighting the will of people. That was the revolutionary idea. And I bring that up to say, if they watch the current Senate going on about the filibuster rules, <laughs> They would say, are you guys not reading the Constitution we wrote? Mm -hmm. We guaranteed that if states were under attack, their democracies were under attack, that the United States would stop it. So the idea that just because, you know, 50 of the people attacking democracy won't go along with the plan to stop their attacks, they'd say, well, you have your 50 votes. Fulfill your oath to the Constitution. Protect democratic governance and states. They explicitly worried about this. And they would say right now, this is what we warned you could happen. It was one other check and balance that they added to the system. And too often, people just, you know, again, against a constitutional guarantee, shall guarantee. That's as serious as it gets. A procedure like the filibuster is overwhelmed by that. Right. And, and why has nothing be done
0: was, about it then? Why is that guarantee exists? Why is no one doing anything?
1: Politics. But my hope I mean, is, and I'm an optimist, is why I'm glad to be on your show. Like, mm. Any forum, any senator, I won't name names, but I've sent this to any senator I know. I've sent it to my great Senator Sherrod Brown. Anything we can do. I think some of them, and we can have debates all day about the filibuster, okay? Some of them worry, well, if they do it here, they have to do it in everything. And the answer to that is, well, have that debate, but this is an issue that isn't some policy disagreement. It's Mm -hmm. not a budget matter. It's not a, you know, other kind of matter. This is about the constitution itself. And if you wanna provide solid, principled ground to carve out an exception the filibuster having a guarantee in the constitution pretty much takes care of that and yeah. so if you're worried about overdoing the fil- getting rid of the filibuster if you're Joe Manchin you can say listen this is the constitution itself it trumps everything else i took an oath to it so i can do this and still uphold the filibuster somewhere else so My hope is this argument actually gives a way out to those who I think are worried about, you know, the filibuster being used elsewhere. Yeah, although they
0: did did it to balance the budget or whatever it was, to raise the debt ceiling. I mean, you know, they don't have to when they want. Yeah, it's not really that issue for them. The issue for them is that they may actually like autocracy. They may actually be, you know, Uh, they may like the system they've built. The
1: the other way to look at all this, uh, one is you take an oath to the Constitution. That trumps the filibuster. Game over. The other is... I don't claim to be a veteran, but I know enough to know you never want to fight asymmetrical wars. Mm. Here you have at the state level, not one state Republican state house is consulting Democrats about the voting laws they're passing. They Mm. ran them through. Not one Democrat votes for it. And they don't care. They don't think twice about it. They're proud of it. But at the Senate level, these same Republicans insist on, well, we're the minority. You must respect our view. Well, no. In this case, if you really were serious about minority view, you'd support this legislation because it's protect minorities in Ohio, in Michigan, in Wisconsin. So the very purpose of the filibuster, which is protect minority view, in this case is actually doing the opposite. It's protecting majorities in Ohio and all these states running over the minority they look again they don't even write these laws in these states they're written in some room somewhere in DC or some conference there's no local input at all and that's an asymmetric warfare okay you get to vote and Chuck Schumer has said this the last couple of days you get to ram through attacks on democracy on a pure party line vote but Mitch McConnell says you can only protect democracy if we all agree as if the people on the side attacking democracy are ever going to magically change their mind about what's happened and Democrats I mean we have a little bit of time but i believe that any senator but especially democrats if they stand in the way of protecting democracy in this two-year window mm. that will be their legacy and right. my kids who want to sleep upstairs will be paying the price of their lack of courage and common sense in the face of of democracy and again it sounds dramatic but the history is very clear in pattern it's just like the great compromise in the 1870s The federal government stopped caring about the South. Jim Crow set in, and a young African-American mid-20s who at that moment would have had black mayors and legislators all around him for his entire lifetime would never again see that because the federal government, including people who knew better, cut a deal and wouldn't fight for democracy. I do not want 2022 to become 1877. That's the risk. And that's what's on the shoulders of these senators. And I hope they see it that
0: way. Thank you for spending your time with Narrative and stay tuned. There's much more to this conversation in our next episode. Narrative is made possible by viewers and listeners like you who join at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Join today and support truly independent journalism. Patreon.com forward slash narrative.